Bird screens and butt plates. Concern yourself with the curtain wall. Deftly defy dangerous deflection. And is that a spud wrench in your overalls, or are you just happy to be 600 feet up in the air? Because it's time to talk tall to me. Tall to me. Tall to me. My lunchbox. Thomas Said. And I am Nick McGill. Together we are Feckless Moms. And this is Talk Told to Me. A union-mandated safety brick on the construction zone of Prague Rock in which no reason to look down Nick and oil-canning Omen will, at great risk to life and limb, structurally secure every single six-ton track that zinc-aluminum-coated rock band Jethrotal have ever released. We will strain to keep our balance along the David Pegg parapet. We will get a funny feeling after breathing in too much Rick Sanders sealant. And we will try not to exceed the manufacturer's stress recommendations when it comes to Martin Barr's seismic load. And if we can't get the building done on time, we know that the foreman will shame us by calling in the flange brace flautist, the one-legged lean-to, the self-drilling Scotsman, Ian Anderson to get things done right. When he finally got that upgrade to self-drilling, he really he changed the game. He started the really self-tapping, but he was yeah. he was the first self-drilling Scotsman on the market for years. There were some kinks in the programming and everything, but it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was really it was really worth it to get in on the ground floor. Early adopters got what they deserved. Yes, I guess. Nick, speaking of getting what we deserved, we are unwrapping a brand new album today. Oh, the excitement. Goodness gracious me. We are on album number 16, ladies and gentlemen. That does not even seem possible. (laughs) The 1987 release, Crest of a Knave. We were a scant two years old at the time. And yet... We remember it as if it was yesterday. I mean, we listened to it enough to make it yesterday. (laughs) Before we jump in with the first song, Nick, a little context about this album. On a personal note, this, I need not tell you because I've already told you like a hundred times, this is one of my favorite albums. I love it. I freaking love it. I didn't realize that it was so, so controversial to like this album. But I, I've seen I've seen plenty of people be like, meh, crest, meh, catfish, meh. Well, everyone's entitled to their opinions, and they are incorrect. This is an amazing album, yeah. and I'm so excited to talk about it. It's so good. Shall we read a little bit about what Mr. Ian Anderson has to say about this album? Let's hear what the fine flutist has to say about Crest of a Knave. Let me just rev him up here. Ah, ah, <laughs> That's how you rev up a Scotsman. Yeah, I get it. This is from the Tall Tome Silent Singing. The sessions began with Farm on the Freeway at Engineer Robin Black's new Black Barn studio. I had by now sold my Fulham recording studios and mobile to work from home rather than spend a fortune to expensively and digitally re-equip Maison Rouge after less than ten years since we opened the doors. New live drummer Doan Perry flew in from California to work on some tracks, and Jerry Conway played drums on a few others. 
The songs were written in different places and at different times. Budapest presented itself on the morning after our first Hungary show, when I woke up in a tired old once-grand hotel on the banks of the Danube before an early morning flight home. The first chords in the opening line came to me as dawn glistened on the not-so-blue river, and I completed the first burst before packing and rushing off to the aeroport. Farm on the Freeway was conceived after countless journeys across the hinterland of the USA, oh. and my growing awareness of the big agribusiness taking over small farms, as it would in the UK and Eastern Europe. Steel Monkey was a deliberate attempt to write a catchy short song as a trailer, which became a briefly popular pop video on MTV. The TV promo and extensive radio play helped Crest become a heavy metal Grammy Award-winning record, much to the irritation of Mytallica and their fans. <coughs> Soft rock with a heavy metal flute, maybe. The excellence of the guitar work helps make this album special. Great job, Martin! The general vocal context is blue-collar Americana, pickup truck farmer meets Scottish Highlander. Who am I kidding? Girly-fingered daydreaming flute player? That's more like me. You have clearly been watching too much What We Do in the Shadows and listening to Matt <laughs> Berry. That is 100% There's what that was. a little bit was. of a Matt Berry influence in there. I, I, I'm appreciative of the fact that you picked up on that. I certainly did. I love how he plays with pronunciation. It's so good. Yeah. Great context. Yeah, very interesting context. That kind of leads us into talking about personnel. I'm going to throw a link to the Steel Monkey music video in the show notes. It's delightfully 80s. Nice. So yeah, let's let's talk personnel. Where we discussed a couple episodes ago, maybe no, we discussed last episode for Coronach about who stayed, who left. And there wasn't too much turnover. The really, the biggest thing, not a surprise at all, the biggest thing is the drum situation. Uh-huh. Well, let's talk about that. So there is no actual drummer listed under the personnel, except for Ian getting, he gets the credit for additional percussion and drum programming, a little remnant from the last album, on tracks one, five, and nine. Then we get good old Doan, who's going to join full-time later on, on percussion for 2 and 7. And I think he did the tour yep, as well. Yep, that makes sense. I think he came on for the tour. And then we've got a throwback to Jerry Conway from Fairport coming on for drums and percussion for tracks 3, 4, 6, and 8. Yeah, so really a mix. Yeah, I mean, if anyone, by virtue of majority, Jerry Conway is the drummer on this album, I suppose. Yeah. You mentioned the tour. The tour for this album was called the Not Quite the World, More the Here and There Tour. <laughs> They've always been very self-aware and very taking the piss, and it's it's delightful. Yeah, and this was, we're moving into the era where they were touring less extravagantly, perhaps, than in the yeah. 1970s. Well, certainly because Ian was still recovering from his voice, I imagine. Although you wouldn't necessarily know it to listen yeah, to this album. it's true. So going back to Ian, he has credits for vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, the percussion, keyboards, synclavier, drum programming, Martin Barr is acoustic and electric guitar, 
Dave Pegg is bass guitar and acoustic bass on track four. Mm-hmm. We've got Doan, we've got Jerry, we've got Rick Sanders on violin for tracks six and eight. And then our additional personnel, Robin Black is engineer as usual. He's been there for quite some time at this point. Yep. Andrew Jamieson is artwork and calligraphy. Tim Mattier is engineer. John Pash is art direction, who was art direction last album as well. And Stephen W. Taylor is engineer and remixing. Oh, Rick Sanders, also part of the Fairport Convention to Jethro Tull Pipeline. Okay, yeah. They loaned him out for a couple of tracks. You know, I hope that they they charged per musician. You know, like if, if Tull had to pay residuals to for every musician that they borrowed from Fairport, Fairport could could have, you know, just stopped touring. Yeah, that's true. And they definitely charge late fees. <laughs> Return your musician on time, please. Stuff him through the box. <laughs> In Koronach, we talked about the term Albion. Yes. As, a, as an old term for England and, and coming from the Latin for the word white. Rick Sanders did a brief time in the Albion Band. Oh, cool. Which is a British folk group, which was a British folk rock band. <laughs> did you say fop group? <laughs> I misspoke. You would be in a British fop group, wouldn't you? I've been in several British fop groups, but they um, keep kicking me out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't renew your dues. Yeah. Uh, I only renew my don'ts. <laughs> so we'll talk more about the context of this album as we go. Lots of beans to spill, lots of cats to let out of bags. But I think that we, barring anything else, should jump in with the very first song. Lots of beans to let out of cats. Steel-eyed span monkey. Oh, now that's a, that's a heck of a mix. Yeah, let's do that. Let's listen to Steel Monkey. Goodness, Omen, that was Steel Monkey. That sure was Steel Monkey. Have you ever had a brass monkey? I know what a brass monkey is on a ship. Okay, what's a brass monkey on a ship? It's the brass plate that they stored bowling balls on. Bowling balls and cannonballs. Oh, cannonballs. Yeah, bowling balls. <laughs> Both, you know, whichever. Yeah, you know, they when they're not using them for the cannon, they could use them yeah. for, for bowling, for 10 pins. Yeah. But it was, it was made of brass because it didn't expand or contract in the cold, so it so you could always pull the, the balls off, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I think that's what it was. That's what it is on a ship. In undergraduate school, a brass monkey is a drink made with a malt liquor and orange juice. That sounds awful. It's much better than you would imagine, weirdly. It's a white trash screwdriver is what it is. It's a bad idea screwdriver, yes. Yeah, okay. But this was Steel Monkey, the song by Jethro Tull, first off of the album Crest of a Knave and Golly. Fascinating hearing Ian say that this was a deliberate attempt to create, like, a punchy little promo piece that could be used as a, as a trailer. It works. Yeah. I think it absolutely works. It's also one of the singles off the album. Yes. Which makes absolute sense. What's the length on it? So he wanted it to be quick and punchy, yeah? Yeah. But this song is... 3 minutes and 37 seconds. Not that quick. 
But also that's radio length. That is short enough to be on the radio. And evidently it was on the radio. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I maybe it's it's our 90s, 2000s mind frame, but I expect it, radio stuff to be like two minutes. I think that's the pop standard. But I think that, you know, this was in comparison to a lot of the other songs on this album, especially this one is the one that is most designed for radio. And it has that long outro, which you could cut off if you needed to, if you're a disc jockey. Very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disc jockey. Yeah, it, we don't judge what you jockey. As long as you're small enough to not add too much weight. As long as all jockeys are consenting, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Budapest, she said she was a dancer, Dogs in Midwinter. Quite long. All long songs off of this album, for sure, yeah. So let's break it down musically. I do want to make sure that we talk about the music video, which is amazing. It is a sight to behold. When I think of VH1, that's what I think of. And it's there's the little VH1 logo in the bottom corner yeah. of the video and everything. Like it's that is primo late 80s VH1. I, I never saw it at that time, but it's just it feels right. It's amazing. There's so much that's bizarre about it to me. <laughs> yes. For those of you who have just watched it or are about to watch it, we won't give away too many spoilers, I guess, but there's a lot of like stock images of modern buildings, you know, office buildings and stuff that have sort of been almost green screened so that there is an overlay often of Ian's face of sometimes the other band members just in the space where the building is. Yes. And then everything else is just the regular sky and stuff. And it's it's kind of brilliant. It, it does. You know, I like the theme of it. It beats the sweet dream video. I'll give you that. It does. <laughs> it's interesting. I think that might be my my favorite way to consume this song going forward. It's just so silly. I do have a major question about it, though, because we know that the actual sound that we're hearing of drums is Drumatron. It's a programmed yeah. drum machine. However, in the video, there is a human drummer. So who is it? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Doan or Jerry or, or someone. But I mean, f- presumably if they played this song for the for the tour, which I'm assuming they did. Oh, sure. They needed a drummer. I guess the question is, when was the music video recorded and did they just get central casting to send them a fake drummer? And they yeah, said, right, right. Put, put this hat, these funny sunglasses on. It'll be fine. Right. They They didn't even have to be in the same room. They just recorded them separately. Right. Yeah, speaking of playing this on tour, how many times has Steel Monkey been played on tour? Oh, golly. I, I imagine it's got to be a lot. I'm sure it was a big a big piece for them during that tour. And I imagine that it because of its popularity, it lasted for years. So I'm guessing it is in the three to 500 mark. Only 207. What? Really? Yeah. They played it out. They played it 36 times in 87, 27 times in 88. 47 times in 89, down to 17 times in 90. Why do they all end in seven? Oh, oh, bummer. Eight times in 91, and then a stretch of nothing, and then they played it 72 times in 1999. Interesting. They needed a break. We may have seen him play that in 99. Oh, no, no. You didn't see. That was more like 2002. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting, interesting stretch. But I, I feel like that late 90s, early 2000s was when they kind of pulled out some of the, the back catalog again yeah. and dusted them off. Musically, we have Martin jumping right in there. It's a very driving song, appropriately. It's very upbeat. To begin, we've got that 
super strange, crazy fast, like synthy drum machine. That was good, yeah. Thank you. I took me a couple tries. I think that's our synth. I think that that's Ian programming one of those uh, one of those instruments. Yeah. Oh yeah, that might be the synth clavier. It could, it could be. I think it's obvious that Mr. PJV left a, a big influence on the band and on Ian, mm-hmm. and I am sure that Ian picked up some tricks, and that was one of them. Yeah, definitely. No warm up. No preamble. No. Right in at that pace that you're just catching your breath and then Martin comes in with that guitar, your face is blown clear off. Your skull is pristine and shiny. Your face is on the wall behind you. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Ready ready for a high school production of Hamlet. <laughs> Ian's voice is crisp. Very different, though. Very different sound in this one, which, understandable. You know, so Ian didn't just have a sore throat and then get over it he he actually went through throat surgery yeah that marks the end of the career for many singers you know there are people who i think mariah carey or someone someone of that caliber may have had vocal surgery at some point miley cyrus had throat surgery because she had blown out her her voice by not using supported vocal technique and also doing quite a lot of drugs and alcohol probably no that's literally what she said literally and her voice sounds completely different. Yeah. Now, Ian sounds less different than Miley Cyrus's. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I've got a quote from Ian here. I was going out and doing under wraps live and I ripped up my throat. Mm. I couldn't sing and I thought maybe time was up and I'd blown my voice completely. I spent a year not doing anything but seeing throat specialists, so it wasn't until the summer of 86 that we went out and did some shows, including one in Budapest where I wrote the song of the same name. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Imagine a person of his activity level taking a year off. He must have sunk everything, all of his focus and energy into the throat recovery. So he was just doing his vocal exercises for a year straight. I imagine that he did an awful lot of writing during that period, or, yeah. or at least a lot of thinking. And I, I suspect that some of the focus and cleanliness and laser quality of this album is maybe a result of that. To be like 25% dramatic, it's almost like an existential crisis, like a life and death situation, you know? Like this, this could be the end of your career. Absolutely. So I imagine there was a lot of processing and and coming to realize what needs to change, what if it's even viable, what needed to change, and and how to perfect the situation. You know, he lasted so long on kind of just his the seat of his pants, but he had to kind of buckle down after that. I imagine you know a lot of times when you when you have an enforced break like that, it can act as a crucible. It can burn away all the non-essential parts of of what you're doing or the way that you think about things. Yeah, that's a great analogy for it, yeah. Either way, wow, this album is high quality. It's super good. It's super, super good. We're moving into the the Knopflerian era of vocals and guitar. Yes. And this album has garnered a lot of comparisons to the work Mm -hmm. of Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler. But the... My gosh, Martin... Just Martin was amazing in Under Wraps, mm-hmm. but like here, it's like 
It's like he was a caterpillar up until under wraps where he was a cocoon and now he's a butterfly. He was under wrapped during which time he was metamorphosizing. In his pupil stage, yeah. Uh-huh. And now he has emerged as a a rock butterfly. <laughs> Little guitar symbols on the on each of the the lobes of the wing. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what I am? To speak a little bit more about Martin, so it was. I loved the fact that you brought that quote from Martin during the last album about how working with Peter John Vitesse really changed his perception of how to record in a studio, mm. and it made him feel freer and less concerned about having every single note absolute perfection. One of the things that I love about hearing his playing in this song is that he takes a few more liberties with the with the time with the with the tempo. Mm-hmm. He he allows his guitar to stretch and even to rush at a couple of points. Not in a, oh, that's clearly a mistake way, but more in a rock and roll like, yeah, I'm so bad, I don't even give a damn about the time signature. I'm going to play from my my root chakra. It's like under wraps was Martin's bar mitzvah, and now he's a proper guitar man. The Martin bar mitzvah? <laughs> Speaking of bar mitzvahs, thank you for bringing that up. You are welcome. <laughs> I was baffled by the the clothing choices in the music video. And my favorite part is when there's this kind of cut and paste Monty Python style montage of the three of them, presumably David Pegg, Martin Barr, and Ian Anderson, walking in their big hats and trench coats along <laughs> a steel beam and looking for all the world like a couple of Hasidic Jews <laughs> marching on down the street. It's really funny. That's very valid. Yeah. It's just so strange. I mean, and they do look badass, but just weird. It's it's a very funny album. Yeah. I mean, it's a very funny music video. It is. Oh. Yes. David Pegg seems to have recovered his will to live in this album. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now that he's, even with this song having to compete with the drum machine, he still steps forward he, in the the little break there. It's really nice. He's got a little funky little beat. Yeah, he has got quite a funky beat. And I get the sense from his style of playing that he's not questioning what he's playing. You know, all of Under Wraps, yeah. I got the sense that it was a little bit good schoolboy bass playing. Yeah, he did it because he had to do it. He he went he through his scales. He had to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Four times four equals... 44. Duh. A bass, a bass guitar... But here, it's like, ah, and maybe I'm projecting a lot of narrative onto this, which of course I am, but like, I get the sense that he's like, yes, rock and roll. Yeah. I'm excited about playing this. Yeah, there, it really comes through. I'll admit the, this song hasn't really interested me by way of subject matter, but musically, it is a powerhouse. It's very invigorating. Uh Uh-huh. So invigorating, in fact, that at the end of the last chorus, we get a primal scream from Ian, which I never noticed until I saw the music video. You can see it on the video. He gives a a two-camera primal scream. It's pretty great. 
It's a bold move given the throat situation. Well, maybe it was building up over that entire year. Maybe he didn't scream for an entire year. <laughs> he was pent up. Yeah, I get it. He had to milk his screamer. <laughs> that, that, that is too euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing musically that I want to mention before we move on. Okay. The synthesizer programmed by one Ian Anderson. One of them. <laughs> programmed by one of the Ian's Anderson. <laughs> is. It has a completely different sound. It has a completely different mentality to it. Yeah. It doesn't sound experimental. It sounds like it knows what it is. It knows what it wants. And, and what it wants, it gets. Yeah, you're right. There's purpose behind this synth. It's not we're crossing a line and we're we're experimenting here and, and you're going to like it or not. It's rock and roll synth. Yeah. It's back to being rock and roll synth. Yeah. It grabs you by the collar. It pulls you in close. You feel it stubble against your cheek. And it says, And you say, yes, synth. <laughs> Uh, Nick, anything else to say musically about Steel Monkey? Uh, just in conjunction with the music video, I know we've seen him play the electric guitar before, but you see Ian playing the electric yeah. in here, and it's kind of, there's kind of cognitive dissonance, for for me at least, seeing yeah. Ian play an electric guitar. It's very strange for some reason. We're used to seeing him hold the acoustic or, or play the flute or play nothing. But or a mandolin. Or mandolin. mandolin. Or, yeah. And it's t- his tiny little acoustic, you know, yes, his, yes. his Ian-sized acoustic. Right. Yeah, no, I, I made a note of that too, forgot to mention it. Yeah, it's really cool to see. Also, no flute in this song. Yes, it's too busy for flute. It's flutless. It's a fluteless number. They use the flute to attach the girders on the, the building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was made into flute flashing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on to our break time, our steelworkers mandated safety break? Let's take a break. Let's sit down on this girder, eat our lunches. Look down on the traffic. I'm gonna drink some coffee from yeah. a thermos. A thermos. <laughs> well, here we are on the girder. Your safety line is improperly harnessed, which is how we like it. I tied it to my shoelaces. Perfect, yeah. So that if I fall, I'm standing up. And so your shoes will stay on. <laughs> That's right. Yo, anything to talk about here? I've got two notes. From two sweet listeners. Oh, golly. We have an email from Fergal. Fergal writes back in. Fergal! Oh my gosh, it's been so long. It's been so long, Fergal. And they write in with a note about Radio Free Moscow, actually. Oh, fantastic. They say, Hi guys, I'm a bit behind on the schedule. Just listened to Radio Free Moscow. A great song. I wonder if Omen was thinking things the wrong way around. Oh, it wouldn't be the first time. Radio Moscow was the international broadcasting organization of the USSR. In the intro of the song, you can hear them say that they're broadcasting to Great Britain and Ireland. About the time of the Underwraps release, out of curiosity, I would listen to Radio Moscow on the shortwave band. I didn't like the broadcasts to Great Britain or Ireland. I preferred the North American service. There was a program called Moscow Mailbag, where Americans and Canadians wrote in, and the questions were answered by an avuncular man called Joe Adamov. To my ears, his accent sounded authentic American, though I don't think he ever lived there. I liked to listen occasionally for the alternative point of view and snippets of life in the Soviet Union. 
I think the song is about someone in the West listening to the Eastern Avenue. Keep up the good work as you head into the tall twilight. If you would like to hear Joe, there is a link below. And I will put that link in the show notes as well to listen to Joe Adamov if you want to hear a little contemporary Radio Moscow. Fascinating. I mean, I think that what we learn from that, and, and thank you so much for pointing out our possible flaws, but I think what we what that further gives, what that puts into the soup of, wait a minute, the soup into which I think we can put that ingredient is the soup entitled, during that time, lots of people were communicating through radio, and that was a, an important tool for counter-narratives in international politics, whether it was radio coming from the USSR or Nick what you were pointing out about the Tokyo Rose broadcasts yeah or if it was you know something more like the BBC World Service where it was being produced in the West and pushed in to the communist countries clearly it was a powerful thing but that's that's fascinating and I love hearing about those lived experiences yeah very cool thank you Fergal for that that's always so fascinating to hear those kind of firsthand moments you remain in our hearts Fergalicious Fergalicious and following up on this, we have ourselves a little a little bit of information about Apogee from Sweet Sweet Tullskull of the Pod. This is from Jupson. Jupson! No less than Jupson, whom you heard on the December creative talk that I had for our Feckless episode, which you can listen to if you are a Patreon patron. Apogee! Celebrate! From Jupson, a flash of wisdom from the old Cup of Wonder site that was kind of like the go-to for tall information. Right. So there's a reference when Ian slows down in the kind of the breakdown where Ian says, Beware a host of unearthly daffodils drifting golden turned up loud. We were trying to figure out what the heck that meant. We thought yeah. maybe they were stars. We thought maybe they were missiles. Mm-hmm. Turns out that all kinds of celestial bodies are often compared to daffodils. And there's a reference to one of the best-known poems of William Wordsworth that is called The Daffodils. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, etc., etc. So I think that is a definite connection. Absolutely. Given the fact that he mentions Wordsworth in here as well. So Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Cup of Wonder. Thank you, Jupson, for doing our job for us. You make it so easy. And you do it so much better than us. <laughs> and you do it so much better. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what we do here. I wonder, you know, a daffodil has six petals, and, and often when you look up into the sky and you, you're looking closely at stars, they kind of, there's, a, I don't know what, what to call it, but there's a little bit of a refraction that happens in looking at them where they, they seem to extend those points out. That's why we draw stars as being pointy. Yeah. But the way that that light actually works is that they do look six-pointed rather than five-pointed or, or anything or any other number of points. It's like a snowflake. Yeah. Snowflake has eight points, though. Unlike a snowflake... <laughs> But similar. Minus two, yeah. I just dropped my sandwich. That pigeon is looking at me kind of funny. He's probably upset that you dropped your sandwich. He was expecting crumbs or something. Well. Oh, whoa. whoa. Frisky. Those New York pigeons. They don't don't hold any punches. Hey, I'm going here. (laughs) 
Nick Omen. It's time. Steel Monkey. It's time. Yes, I've stolen quite a few. You've stolen quite a few steel monkeys? I've stolen some monkeys. Oh. Oh, steel. Steel monkey. Steel monkey. Yeah. Okay. I get it. It's the imperative. It's Ian telling us to rob zoos. Is that what that's, it is? That's right. So, Nick, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the band Jethro Tull and how unlike a lot of other rock bands and musicians, they're not content to simply write songs about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, about affairs of the heart, but they write, and Ian specifically writes music and songs about the working peoples of the world. And I think that this is, you know, there's always been that that vein within Tall Songs, but this is the period where we start to see more of a shift toward that. Ian said it himself, the, the, the tone is blue collar. Right. For the next couple of albums, going through and listening that, to them, I've really, they really fall into two buckets, mostly. There are a couple outliers, but it's either like working man song or sultry sexy song. Sometimes they blend. Sometimes there's an overlap. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. there's a Venn diagram, but that's predominantly what we're going to be hearing for the next couple of months. So Nick, what is a steel monkey? A steel monkey is someone who works the steel, who works up on the girders and builds the skyscrapers. Yeah. Very dangerous job. It used to be, in the days when New York City was experiencing a huge growth of skyscrapers, a huge proportion of the steel workers, or iron workers, as they're sometimes called in New York, were uh, Mohawk Indians. Oh, wow. Cool. Yep. There was a huge indigenous population who kind of took on that industry and, and built the city that we now know and loathe. There are other types of monkeys. Often, you know, I, this, these may be American terms, but a grease monkey yep. is somebody who works in a mechanic shop. I sometimes worked as a grid monkey, which is the person who goes up into the grid in the theater to be up in the air, hang the lights, run cables and stuff like that. Okay. Slightly less glamorous than working on a high rise. But it's usually, it's usually an Americanism. In American vernacular, it's a term that denotes a working person. It's not even derogatory per se. It's just, it just tells you that it's like a, I guess specifically, it's like a, it's a hands-on, like really hardworking sure producing some sort of physical product of some kind. Yeah. As the moon slips up and the sun sets down, I'm a high-rise jockey, and I'm heaven-bound. Do the work boot shuffle, loose brains from brawn. I'm a monkey's puzzle, and the lid is on. As the moon slips up and the sun sets down, I'm a high-rise jockey, and I'm heaven-bound. Do the work boot shuffle, loose brains from brawn. I mean, punchy. Super punchy. I've got a velvet mondegreen here. Is it a bear? Is he shaking his hair? Is it velvet mondegreen? Green me up. I always thought it was I'm a high-rise junkie. I always thought that too. Yeah. Which works. It all it still works in the context, so it never really I I never really questioned it. Meaning, in your version, that would be somebody who is addicted to being up at those heights. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's the it's the thrill, it's the product, it it's the enjoyment of creating a physical product with your hands. You get to see your end result, but it's also the excitement of being up in the air. Any notion what a monkey puzzle is, or a monkey's puzzle? A monkey puzzle is a type of tree. I know that it's it's a super super ancient old coniferous tree that is super spiky. 
And it's called a monkey puzzle because the monkey wants to get into it, but it's it's very sharp, so they can't get up into it. I wonder if there's also that's also a term for maybe one of those games that you can't where you have the nail and the the chain and all that stuff and you can't figure it out how to how to get it out. Those physical space puzzles, I guess. It could be, yeah. Because what would the lid be? I don't know. The lid is on sounded like a just a turn of phrase. The work boot shuffle is something that I think you and I are both very familiar with. Yeah. Which is that when you're working uh, long hours doing physical labor, you have to keep your footing. I mean, no matter what circumstance you're in, whether it's digging trenches and, and, and pulling cable for traffic lights or whether it's working on very uneven surfaces in, in a theater, there's a special kind of foot movement that you do to make sure to keep your balance. And it's sort of like this constant process of confirming where the ground is, feeling where the ground is about to be, moving your weight, shifting your weight. Yeah. And it all happens fluidly, but you're in constant motion. I imagine that being up at these heights and having even less reliable footing, it makes it even more important. I love that detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, your feet are always in contact, especially when you're up in the up in the air. Your feet are always in contact. And always looking for the next place yep. to go. Absolutely, yeah. It's also, I think it's also a play on people who work in these trades are so goddamn tired when they're done uh-huh. that they shuffle when they're home. They just shuffle to the fridge, they shuffle to the couch, and they pass out. But the shuffle is also a kind of a dance. True, yeah. So I feel like there's a little bit of a reference to the sexiness that you were talking about. Like, yeah, I'm just going to shuffle all over to work. <laughs> there's a pride. There's a sense of machismo in this song, which is sexy and fun. I'm wearing work boots and a silk nightie. Come on over. <laughs> it's like going to the bar and dancing in your work boots. Yeah, sure. You didn't even go home. You just had to get out there and dance after work. The power of dance compels you. Yeah, it sure does. Can you guess my name? Can you guess my trade? I'm going to catch you anyway. You might be right. I'll give you guesses three. Feel me climbing up your knee. Guess what I am? I'm a steel monkey. Can you guess my name? Can you guess my trade? I'm going to catch you It kind of reminds me of, is it the Rolling Stones song? Sympathy for the Devil? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, a little bit. Have you guessed, what's that lyric? Nice to meet you. Can you, Won't guess, you my guess my, my name? name? Yeah, yeah, that's right, right. Nice to meet you. Won't you guess my name? Oh, yeah. Probably not a direct reference, but kind of an interesting little resonance there. Yeah. Yeah, I want to go back to Monkey Puzzle really quick. Please do. Hofstra, my alma mater, is a national arboretum, and they had a monkey puzzle there. Wow. That's how I know what a monkey puzzle is. It was really cool. They had all sorts of weird trees. My friend Lily, with whom I would walk to class for like every day for a semester, shout out to Lily, I know you're listening. What up? We would walk by that tree, and it's just kind of tucked in the corner of Hofstra. It makes me think of, you know, the... There's the old story about the monkey trap, which is that you have a jar that is the mouth of which is wide enough for a monkey to get their hand in. Mm -hmm. But if they close their hand around the bait that's inside, then they can't get their fist out. But they won't let go of the bait because they want it too badly. Right. I wonder if there's an implication of that, that it's like, if you reach out to me, you're going to get stuck. And therefore the (sighs) lid is on. You think so? I don't know. Throwing out guesses. Throwing pasta at the wall. 
I'm looking at the derivations on Wikipedia. There is a species of butterfly called a monkey puzzle. I don't think they have lids. Rathinda amor. It's very pretty, little butterfly. There is an acapella music group called Monkey Puzzle. Nope. There is a UFO album called Monkey Puzzle. That's the one. There is a The Saints album called Monkey Puzzle. There is a children's book called Monkey Puzzle, an Australian film called Monkey Puzzle. Monkey Puzzle is Sia's vanity record label. I think that we're going to have to rely on the minds and experiences of those who came before us to to help us out with this one. Wikipedia? No, our listeners. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, if you guys, if there's a reference that you know aside from the tree, if it's just, maybe it's just I'm a working monkey. He says loose brains from brawn, so Uh maybe there's a connotation of I'm just a mindless ape doing work, although apes are not monkeys, I get it, that... A primate? That they're just putting the pieces together, you know? Yeah, interesting. Interesting. If we go to the next verse, now some men hustle and some just think. Ooh, a little dig at the office workers. <laughs> and some go running before you blink. They don't stick around. Some look up and some look down from 300 feet above the ground. Now some men hustle and some just think and some go There's kind of this, again, there's this pride of being like, I am higher up than anybody else. I look down on all y'all. Yeah. That gives me a superiority. And those people who just sit and think will be doing it in the offices that fill this skyscraper. Uh Uh-huh. But I got to experience it from outside, basically. I got to be here from the start of it. You just get to sit in, in an office in a cube. I love the line, well, I won't rest before the world is made. Yeah. Arm in arm, the angels fly, keep me from falling out the sky. Ugh. Well, can you guess my name? Can you guess my trait? Well, I won't rest before the world is made. Arm in arm, the angels fly, keep me from falling out the sky. There's something almost Titan-esque about it. Ooh. Go on. Well, the Titans were the predecessors to the gods in Greek mythology. Yeah. And they created a lot of the infrastructure of the Greek world, for lack of a better way of saying it. Yeah. So it's this a little bit of the sense of like, yeah, you you have your jobs, you're happy, you're sad, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. My job is to literally create the world, not in some kind of abstract, thinky-uppy type way. But literally, yeah, by welding steel beams that each weigh three tons together, hundreds of feet up in the air, he's literally making the world. It's brilliant. The original Titans were the children of Uranus, the Titan of Heaven, and Gaia, the Titan of Earth. There were 12, Oceanus, Coius, Creus, Hyperion, Iaptus, and Cronus. And then the sisters were Thea, Rhea, Themis, Nemesine, Phoebe, and Tethys. Yeah, and they created some bad things. They did. And they created also things like time and the oceans. Yeah, some good things to come out of that. Just a quick plug, I would highly, highly, highly recommend Stephen Fry's Greek trilogy that he wrote. He wrote one about the heroes, he wrote one about the gods, and wrote one about the Odyssey. 
and they are amazing. I would definitely recommend the audiobooks. He is, I, I listen to those like once every year or two. They're so darn good. Big fans of the Fry. Yeah, big Fry fans. Now, Nick, I want to talk specifically about my favorite line in this song. And this song is the first, this song is what I play at my consent trainings. I know what you're going to say. Go on. <laughs> I work in the thunder and I work in the rain. Well, yeah, sure. There's no stopping for weather in the steel business. I work at my drinking and I feel no pain. Surely substance abuse has existed high rates amongst the working peoples of the world. Prevalent, sure. Go on. I work on women if they want me to. Work in the thunder. How groundbreaking. Oh my god. If they want me to, I work on them. Amazing. You can have me a climb all over you. You can have me climb all over you. Yeah, if oh, you baby. want. If you want. You give me permission. Do you want me to? Sign this form and I'll climb all up on you. <laughs> Climbing should commence anywhere between 12 weeks and 6 months depending on the availability of materials. <laughs> Given COVID, we'll push it back another month or two. Yeah, it's, we're still working. Yeah. You got to pay me extra for climbing. So yeah, there it is. There's the sexy side of things there. Sexy and consensual. And consensual, yeah. It's great. Is this Ian, like, distilling the blue-collar worker to, like, three aspects? You know, I'm a hard worker who doesn't quit. I drink my pain away, and I'm going to get all up in you. I don't think it's disrespectful. I don't think it's derogatory at all. No, I think it's, I think you said it, it's distillate. Yeah. There's a purity here. It's sort of, Ian hasn't been a, a high-rise steel worker, to my knowledge. But I think that he is an, a great observer of the world mm -hmm. and has clearly had a lot of contact with the working peoples. The working peoples. <laughs> And I think that there's a sense of, I think there's a sense of idealization of this group of people, this kind of like hero, making them into hero figures. Lionizing. Lionizing. Yeah, yeah that's a word that you like to use. Elephantizing. <laughs> we don't recommend that. It's like the work hard, play hard mentality. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I ain't scared of being up high in the rain. I ain't scared of drinking a fifth of whiskey. And I ain't scared of putting my heart on the line and having a beautiful young woman say no to me. My heart is safety tethered to my chest. It will not be ripped out. Janice. <laughs> I always go on dates in pairs in case one of us falls down. Always have a buddy. Oh, use the buddy system when you're going out on a romantic entanglement. So is this, like we said, this is the start of this kind of stretch of Blue collar sexy. Is this something of like an apology tour of, yeah, I let the rock and roll thing kind of get out of control. Yes, I made an ill-advised synth pop album. But look at me. I'm back with my monkey tail between my legs. I've returned to my roots. You can connect with me again. You know? I don't think it is. No? I think this is a... Because if you look at the other songs on this album... Farm on the Freeway, long, poetic, 
But it's it's Tragic still. Piece. I know, but she said she was a dancer. Tender. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's taught dogs in mid in midwinter. Who the heck knows what that one's about? <laughs> Mountain men. There's no clue. We'll get into it. <laughs> you know, a lot of these are long and and obscure. You're right. You're right. I think that he's bookended this album with Steel Monkey and Raising Steam. I think he's it's a sensitivity sandwich on rock hard abs bread. Okay. Blue collar bread. On blue collar bread. I feel like he is now that it is the eighties, Jethro Tell shifts. The atmosphere shifts every album. Oh sure. And yeah. I don't think this is a oh well, people didn't like under rap, so I'm going in a different direction. I think it's I genuinely don't think he cares what people want. Yeah. I think. I think you're right. I think this is just due to any number of extenuating circumstances, any number of outside influences and and internal influences this is where the band goes in 87 that's all that's the sound that's the feel exactly yeah. and i think that it's you know there was a lot of pent up energy yeah i think this is the don't call the comeback album okay yeah i was out of the public eye for a little while He's not going to come slinking back with some kind of sensitive, you know, bony bear. I thought about my feelings album. It's freaking steel beams in your face. But it's also not a heavy concept album either, you know, like. It's heavy, but not a concept album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's heavier than Metallica. Award-winningly so. Yeah, the Grammys have proven it. Any other thoughts about this song, Nick? No. I'm going to admit it is my least favorite song off of this album. <sighs> I know. I know you like it so much. <laughs> Why do we have to have different opinions about things? Because otherwise it would just be us stroking Ian's ego for the same things. Okay, that's fair. But now when, when you're not stroking, I'm stroking. You're on the backstroke, I'm on the breaststroke. <laughs> different strokes for different folks. Yeah, exactly. Okay. To wrap up, this is a fantastic song about uh, steel workers in the United States. I did have a thought while I was traveling back to Florida from from Thanksgiving, in which I where I saw you, which was fantastic. <gasps> That's right. The moms were in person. The yes. the once a once a year court ordered mom contact. <laughs> That's right. And on the way back, my flight was delayed, so I was listening to a lot of music to, to kind of like calm myself down. I listened to Abba's Super Trooper album. And it occurred to me that actually ABBA has a lot of songs about things that are not the standard fare for rock bands. Interesting. Just a little teaser for thoughts that I may have later. I cannot wait. You won't have to because I will probably forget. As we have discussed, next week is Farm on the Freeway, track number two off of Crust of a Knave. It sure is. Until next week, however, you can do the work boot shuffle if we sold Talk Tell to Me branded work boots, but we don't. So instead, you can do like the t-shirt shuffle or the sweatshirt shuffle, even blanket or pillow shuffle if you mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. I'll do the blanket shuffle with you. Check out our wow. T public link nestled cozily in the show notes 
Now, some men hustle and some just think and some go running before you blink. Some look up and some look down from our wonderful Discord group chat that you can get access to by becoming a Patreon member for a measly five American dollars a month. That's it. That's a lot less than it used to be. Yeah. It's the same amount, but inflation. (laughs) Yes, economics, sure. Arm in arms, the angels fly, dotting five stars across the sky. You, too, can do that when you leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Until next week, have you guessed my name? It's Omen Thomas Said. Guess what I am? I'm a Nick McGill. We live here in the Sulphur City, feckless momes. And we are the men who neither hustle nor think. Talk tell to me. <laughs> hey, Nick. Omen, welcome. Hey, hi. so usually here we do some kind of a really odd but heartfelt sketch, but instead we're going to take this couple last moments to brag about you, our listeners. Yes, with great, great love, our sweet tall skulls, we want to thank you for what you have given us, the Feckless Momes, throughout the year that is 2002. And how do we know what you've given us? Spotify Wrapped. Thanks, Spotify. Hashtag Spotify Wrapped. My personal Spotify Wrapped is a is a complete disaster. It looks like I'm an insane person. I can only imagine, yeah. But we apparently have created 2,464 new minutes of content this year. That sounds right. That sounds right, yeah. Definitely. We have reached 54 countries. The top five being the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Sweden, and Ireland. Thank you, Sweden. Hey, Sweden. Come on, speak up. Wow. Write in. Let us know your thoughts on things. Write us in Swedish so we know where you're from. Oh, yeah, and and Omen and I will do terrible accents. We've also been listened to in a couple of principalities. I'm sure we have, yeah. So some really, really banging numbers here. We are in the top 10% most followed podcasts. Hard to even imagine how that's possible. We're also in the top 15% of most shared podcasts globally. Globally! People discovering us and saying, oh my god, here's a podcast about Jethro Tull. I know this other person who likes Jethro Tull. I will share it with them. A good model to follow. I didn't know there were that many people who liked Jethro Tull. (laughs) Over the year, we have grown 131% on our listenership. Thank you, those additional 131%. Thank you, the originals, too, also. The old-school Tall Skulls. I've personally grown 36%. That's right, in various locales. Our hours went up 94%, followers went up 92%, and streams went up 79%. And Spotify has identified our podcast listener personality as the devotee. It says, when your fans love a podcast, they really love it. They're quick to support new releases and play their favorite episodes over and over. That's amazing. That's really cool. We are happy to have your support. It honestly means so much to us. It was the talk of Thanksgiving dinner. When Rook wasn't talking about Krakens. When Rook was not dominating the conversation with his pressing questions. But we we literally... 
are just so thankful for your listenership, for your appreciation, and to be able to be a part of this community surrounding listening to Jethro Tull, which is, you know, good, clean fun. Absolutely. Our hearts extend to you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll work on making some new episodes if you want us to. Yeah, maybe. We'll be crawling all over you. 